Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. On this week's podcast, we're going to do something that we've done once recently before. We're going to interview Jared. Uh, Jared's going to tell us about who he is, what his life story has looked like, and uh, how he has arrived as an equity partner at Brownlee Wealth Management, and uh, uh, what he thinks about uh, personal matters and the financial planning industry in general. Jared, how are we doing today? Good, good, Justin. I'm I'm not going to lie. It felt a little weird not doing the intro, um, but I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. It felt weird for me to do the intro, so uh, I think I think we made it, and we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. Normally, I'm not asking a whole lot of questions, and so I'm hoping to be a uh, a good question asker today. Awesome. Well, looking forward to it. Fire away, man. All right. So first things first. Let's just let's just cover some of the basics. Where exactly are you from? That's a tough question. Um, so I was born and raised in Southern California. In a small beach town, El Segundo, uh, which means the second, our Chevron people may know that name of that town because the second is actually the second oil refinery in the state of California. Uh, so it was a big, big Chevron town, grew up there, uh, spent a lot of my formative years there by the beach, which was a fun place to grow up. And then uh, going into my junior year of high school, uh, we moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And so when people ask me where I'm from, uh, it's been so long since I've lived in California, so I can't really say California. And my folks uh, you know, live in Memphis, and I go back there, and that's where I finished up high school. But also, I, I didn't live there that long. So a little bit of Cal- California with the, side of, with the side of Memphis. And I realized those two are very different in terms of culture, experience. So a, a little bit of both of those. Very cool. And uh, we are going to touch on the uh, California um, upbringing for a little bit, but before we go there, tell us a little bit more just about what was your family like growing up? Yeah, my family was weird and in like the best way. Um, we loved to do like we were big on experiences. We would we would travel a lot. Uh, my family has a farm in Honduras that I've been going to since I was six months old. So the first time I went out of the country, I was six months old and uh, lots of random trips to Colorado to go snowboarding, uh, went to Europe a few times in middle school. Uh, we had fam- we have family all throughout the U S so a lot of time spent on a plane or in a car traveling to go visit people. So we were kind of just shooting from the hip a little bit and we loved making experiences and just kind of getting out of our comfort zone and just enjoying different people and different cultures and, and things like that. So, uh, it was really kind of, rambunctious. Uh, and there were three of us and I was the oldest of three and I have a younger sister and a younger brother. And so, yeah, a lot of time together, but also a lot of time just kind of traveling out and about. And how would you say, we've talked about this a little bit because, uh, we've shared this on the podcast that we've thought through a lot of different moving decisions with children. So what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on having children in, in doing cross country moves? I'm for it in the long term. Right. And, and I'll tell you, you know, if you knew me when I you know, think about plucking a kid from, from his high school and his friends in the be- in a beach, uh, near Southern California and, and sending him to 
a private school in Memphis, Tennessee. Talk about culture shock. I might as well might as well have relocated, done like a foreign exchange program. It's just so different culturally, and it was so hard, but it was just so formative, right? You learn so much about how much people have in common, just how different people are, right? Like even within cultures and it it stretches you, right? And you learn to become uncomfortable uncom- with the uncomfortable. And, you know, it, it was, it was hard and it was really difficult. But, but as I look back on it, I, I just feel like it made me more globally minded and really kind of challenged a lot of notions I had about what, what I thought of people in the South or, and I learned more about what people in the South thought about people on the West coast and kind of the assumptions there and just, you know, how much more we have in common than we think. And, and, you know, just the importance of kind of having your bubble popped and having it stretch you and, and form you as a person. So hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the time it was, it was really hard and it wasn't enjoyable, but getting to experience different, you know, different cultures, and then also going from a public school to a private school, just having the, the spectrum, right. Cause I don't think one's necessarily better than the other. There's, there's pros and cons with each. So just getting to experience both you know, makes you just makes you a more objective person. Of course, we're humans, so we're all kind of internally biased based on our experiences. But getting a broader set of experience kind of creates empathy for for a lot of people that are different than you. So, I would recommend it. You know, it, it, it's it's tough at the time, but for me, it was. I think it was a good thing long term. Very cool. Uh, before we move on, I want to ask this so I don't forget it. I know this story, but this is a just really fascinating, interesting deal. Uh, I know growing up in California, you were in very close proximity to uh, one of the most interesting people in the world. Um, so I'd love for you to just quickly tell the story of, of, of that happening, who that is, and how that came about. So I had a good friend growing up named Noah, and he wanted to start his own TV show. And so we would just kind of, you know, be a middle school kid, just had a video camera, would record some stuff. But there was a famous, or I guess not at the time that famous, because this was, you know, mid mid 2000s right so what way before but he uh was the president he owned a company wow so he really was not famous yet. yeah he's he, yeah so he owned a company called spacex and the person we're talking about is elon musk and uh spacex's headquarters at one point was in the town i grew up in el segundo and he was his uh off the spacex's office was pretty much across the street so every time on our way home from school uh, we would see if his McLaren was out there, if he was getting out there or into it. And one day, sure enough, he was outside. So so we ran over and we talked to him a little bit. I, and I wasn't the interviewer. I was the person recording. But uh, Noah just asked him a couple questions about you know what it was like to have a McLaren, having no idea that it was, in fact, Elon Musk and the things that he would go on to do. It was just the guy with the really cool car that you know seemed like a good person to interview in, in our small town. That's incredible. I think that's probably just before uh, Iron Man, the first Iron Man was released too, which is, you know, obviously kind of loosely based off of his life. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Just a lot of funny things like like that uh, in in Southern California, right? I didn't have a ton of celebrity sightings, but yeah, that it, that is a kind of funny little quirk and quirk and claim to fame. Yes. That funny quirk, as well as the uh, Pete Carroll, Southern California uh, college football teams. Um, also pretty interesting. I guess touch on that for yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So um, I played Pop Warner football growing up, despite you know my lanky physique. I, I loved football, played it a ton as a kid, uh, was always one of the smallest kids on the team. But my uh, childhood best friend playing Pop Warner, uh, my best friend on the football team, his dad was the linebacker coach at uh, USC in like the golden years, Reggie White. 
or uh, Reggie Bush, Lindale White, Carson Palmer, Matt Leiner, just when it was an absolute dynasty. And so he was on that staff. So occasionally, you know, I, I'd go to games regularly, but occasionally I'd get to go to the locker room. And, you know, it, it, one of the things about this, this group of coaches was they all went on to be superstars. So on that roster uh, of coaches was Steve Sarkeesian, Ed Ogeron, Lane Kiffin, just a lot of first class people that were all, you know, at that time, smaller coaches. So, you know, I've had dinner with all those those guys uh, had no idea at the time. It was just, you know, my friend's dad's friends. Right. And so, you know, I'd be over at his house regularly and got to know that got to know them a little bit. And so just kind of a random, random little thing. But, yeah, it was a great time to be a USC football fan. That's for sure. And some cool experiences in the locker room and at Rose Bowls and stuff like that. I mean, that's incredible because obviously those USC teams were some of the greatest teams ever. But I also wish that you would have been older when this happened so that you could have just almost gotten more info and, and, and shared more about who is Ed Orgeron, who is Lane Kiffin. I mean, those are probably two of the uh, most interesting college football coaches in the country. So very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I got my good, you know, I got my good football team years early on. Right. So I just, I extrapolated and thought that that was what it was like to be a football fan. And then I went to, you know, went to Arkansas for college and it's been a world of hurt, you know, for the last 10 or so years, but things are looking up. So yeah, it was a lot, a lot more fun as a, a lot more to root for, uh, early on in my, in my football life. Absolutely. We will move on to more pressing matters. But the last thing I'll say is the uh, only um, institution to beat Pete Carroll's USC dynasty twice was Bill Snyder at Kansas State. Um, I was at one of those games in 2002. So pretty neat factoid for all of our listeners um, that care about that. But let's move on. Jared, tell us about what was your first money memory? Yeah. So my first money memory was just kind of right. I talked about my family being very uh, experiential in their spending. Uh, it was just we spent money differently than a lot of families, right? In terms of like you know, growing up in Southern California was even expensive back then, right? So we didn't have a lot of material things. Like I remember Christmas being lighter for me than all of my friends, and like I just don't remember having a ton of stuff. And like like if I wanted a new surfboard or a new skateboard, I had to work for it. And like I was on a slower upgrade cycle than all my friends and right, like had to do chores and like find ways to make money. So like there was just we spent money very differently. And it was kind of like a like not like a source of shame. I just it just felt weird, right? Like when people just spent money in a way that was different. They they bought a lot more things, but a lot of them didn't do a lot of the things that I did growing up, right? So it was kind of a it was just less conventional. And I, I found that to be uncomfortable, but like, you know, kind of like with most things most things in life, I'm extremely grateful for it. And I feel like it's a, that's impacted me in the way that I've spent. But I just remember there being a disconnect and feeling kind of different with with how we allocated money. Absolutely. And uh, what are some of the practical things that you want your family to look like um, financially and, and, and along, along those lines? I think experientially, right? Like I love the focus on experiences, like using money as a tool to cultivate that and, and not stuff, but like really unique experiences. Um, I love that in, in my family, right? And I'm really grateful for that. And I think like one of the things that like I would change was like, a lot of the times if, if we didn't, if, if there wasn't something that was valuable enough to us, to us, the verbiage used was like, Hey, we can't afford that, which actually wasn't true. It was just, Hey, 
here's our priorities. And because these are our priorities, these are not our priorities, right? So like, I may have just communicated that in a different way. So if I could change one thing, I, that's, that would kind of be the thing that I changed, but I love the experiential. And then uh, my parents have just always been incredibly generous people, not just with their money, but with their time and their resources and their energy and their professional expertise. So really kind of continuing to cultivate that generosity and open-handedness are some principles and some things that I, that they did really well that I want to continue to do uh, with our family. Absolutely. That's very cool. And that's such an interesting topic, the idea of how do you handle whether to make a purchase or not? Because the decision is easy and in specifically with family and money, the decision in, in communicating to children is really easy if the answer is we can't afford it. Uh, but something we've talked about even this week, and we're going to be talking about this in the coming months, is the relational side of estate planning. And you don't, you know, you don't need to be a founder of a hundred million dollar company for your children to inherit a life changing amount of money. Um, even just something happening and your children inheriting a million dollars. Well, that's a big event because in the past it's easy to say, well, we can't afford that. Uh, but what if the answer is actually, well, we, we can't afford that, but does it line up with our values? Does it line up with our life mission? Um, stuff like that. So, so very, very interesting. I'd love to hear a little bit specifically about how did you get into financial planning? What has your path been professionally? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause like with most things in life, it's very nonlinear, right? So, um, I went into college, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I ended up studying finance, almost like a career hedge, right? I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I figured if I got something more technical like finance or accounting, and then I did sales and marketing, that would be an easier transition than going from sales and marketing to accounting or finance. So really the reason I pursued it was because more doors remained open. Uh, I feel like that that kept more doors open in the future. Um, and actually my first job out of college was really what inspired, got me energized about the profession. There was a... Uh, small investment advisory firm up in Northwest Arkansas where University of Arkansas was. And uh, the owner of the firm had just bought out his business partner and he was just, you know, he had been been in business for a few years, uh, but really was going to build the business from the ground up and had a lot of opportunity. And uh, it, it was rare because most financial planning jobs are very sales centric and you just get a commission. But I was basically communicated, hey, I have a good flow of, of, of leads coming in. We're doing a lot of executive comp planning with Walmart, which is the big company up here. Uh, I just need somebody to kind of help me with financial planning capacity and investment management. And so, you know, as I, as I look back on it, I think I really took the job because I was really excited about the idea of like learning how to run a business. And this was a fun, fun environment to do that in. And that's exactly what I did. I learned a ton about financial planning as a profession, investment management, you know, compliance. There was just two of us. So I was doing a little bit of everything. And so I, that job presented itself. I just found it on a job board and applied. And uh, I started working part-time before I graduated. And I said, hey, yeah, I, this is interesting. This is kind of fun. Let's give it a go and see where it takes us. But I think I was more excited looking back on it about the entrepreneurial piece, more so than the financial planning piece. But but as I got exposure to the profession and learned about the value that planning could add, I was kind of taken away. And I really like believed in in this idea of like helping people kind of steward their capital to live meaningful lives and accomplish the things they want to accomplish. So it's right at the intersection of, hey, it's intellectually stimulating. There's numbers, there's tax, there's, there's some complexity there, but also it's highly relational, right? And the product isn't 
a good, it's a service and it's a relationship and kind of translating all of that uh, intellectual information into something that's digestible and actionable and connected to the end client's goals uh, scratches kind of both of those quantitative and qualitative components. So I, I, I didn't, you know, know I was going to enjoy it, but uh, that was my first job out of school. And I've kind of stayed in this profession ever since. Very cool. And uh, a lot of our listeners probably uh, don't know this because you have no reason to uh, get into the weeds of financial planning as a profession. Uh, but Jared's really become a thought leader on the industry. And you've done several different podcasts about the future of financial planning in different avenues um, on, on where that's headed. Uh, so I'd love to just hear some of your thoughts Financial planning as a career, as an industry, where is it going in the next five, 10 years? And what are the most exciting things that are happening? Yeah, I think a lot of the changes in financial planning as a profession are happening all throughout, like just a lot of service-based industries as a profession, right? I think the acceleration of remote work is huge, right? And having a talent pool that's not geographically confined. It just creates this game to where you can really kind of source up the absolute best talent, uh, regardless of how small your job market is. Uh, so I think that's one of the big trends that I, th that I think is happening. I also think right specialization is going to continue to happen, right? Because in, in financial planning, if you think about trying to win clients, if, you know, if, if you're writing about Roth IRAs, you're competing with all the biggest firms in the world, right? But if you're writing about Chevron's specific plan, right? Or the pension or, uh, you know, this restructuring and merger of Anadarko and Oxy change of control, right? Like those things, it's much less saturated real estate. So I think there's people that specialize and focus are going to, are really, really going to do well. And I think, right, the profession is going to continue to move to a place where, uh, you basically, you don't need to win business. There's kind of a, a business that creates the marketing and kind of creates the lead flow. And, and there's more of an emphasis on service versus sales production. So that's kind of something that, that we're in the early innings of that I think it's going to work itself out. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say that I think is really exciting is I would say fractional employment. So prior to, and I know Justin and I will talk about this, prior to me working uh joining Brownlee Wealth Management, I was doing kind of part-time outsourced financial planning to a bunch of different advisors around the country. And one of the reasons I think that's so cool is because it allows career changers or people that are, you know, new parents or anyone who doesn't have a full 40 hours to give to kind of work in some capacity. So I think fractional work where, or if an advisor needs help, but they don't necessarily have 160 hours of work a month, right? They can, they can kind of pay you what they can for maybe a quarter of your time. And you can find several other advisors to kind of fill those gaps. So I think the idea of fractional work, especially for small independent wealth management firms is going to be really valuable, right? Cause it's, it's scary going from one employee to two employees. That's a hundred percent increase in workforce. Um, so having, having a way you can hire somebody in a part-time virtual capacity to kind of just help you, not go crazy or not burn out, right? Uh, I, I think that's going to be something that's huge that that really changes over the coming years. And I think this isn't financial planning profession specific, but some of these trends are also existing in other parts of the service economy as well. Yeah, very cool. Let's uh, let's let's take something that you uh, hinted on, and let, let's go further into uh, specifically your uh, role here at Brownlee Wealth Management. What brought you here? What did that look like? And uh, why are you here? So I, uh, 
like I said, I've been working with uh, in the financial planning profession my whole career. Most recently, it was doing consulting and uh, outsourced financial planning, so doing you know plan development and f- for a set of advisors. Um, and so one of the things that I didn't like about that is that was a it was an hourly engagement, right? So there's an equation where the only way to make more money is to work more. Um, and there was no enterprise value in my business, so I kind of felt like I was spinning my wheels. And then there was a disconnection problem. So if you think about what I did, I was building plans behind the scenes, uh, which is kind of like being a chef, but never getting to see like the difference that your food is making in people's lives or getting to see the enjoyment on their faces when they eat it. So I felt kind of disconnected from from the work that I was doing. Like I, I knew the technical nuts and bolts of, hey, let's recommend this strategy and, and the client will be better off for doing things A, B, and C. But I wasn't connected to the client, uh, just really to the advisor doing the work behind the scenes. So I didn't like that. Uh, and so I began to think of, okay, what what do I want to do? And then the other thing that kind of happened at this point was I was working for, uh, right before we started working together, probably half a dozen advisors all throughout the country, um, plus a few different firms prior to that. And over time, you get a really, really good base of knowledge and, and, and experience to say, okay, if I were to do this myself, what would I want it to look like, right? You have a good sample size of firms and you could kind of cherry pick, hey, I like this. I don't like this. I might do this a little bit differently. I think this advisor did this really well. So I I built up kind of a good base of experience to where I could kind of contemplate, okay, what would this look like in applying applying it to a firm? And what kind of firm would I be excited to work for? Because I feel like my entrepreneurial background led me to a spot where I eventually wanted to be a firm owner, uh, but I didn't have the experience or the chops or, you know, quite frankly, the resources in my bank account to make that happen. So I just, you know, I committed to learning and, and working with a bunch of different advisor, advisors really accelerated that. And then, which ultimately, you know, led me to Justin, right? And it's funny because if you think about how our relationship started, I uh, I was checking up on him. I heard he had started his own firm and I was like, Sounds like a prospect for my consulting outsource planning business. We'd love to kind of check in and see how he's doing. And uh, every time I talk to him is really good conversation, kind of thinking strategically about what he was up to and how he was serving clients and the things he was running into and the success he was having. And I was just, I was really excited. Uh, and I feel like Justin and I have really complimentary skills. Um, Justin's really great at 10,000 foot thinking, okay, how do we, how do we build dominance in marketing? How do we create content that's really meaningful? How do we build a sales process that really engages people? And I love the more technical operations. Okay. How do, what software tools do we use? How do we manage portfolios? Um, how do we build infrastructure and a process? And so we would just have really long conversations about that. And, and I got excited about what, what he was building and he approached me about potentially partnering together and, it was a great opportunity to kind of take all of the things I've been learning throughout my career and really apply it in, in a business model I'm excited and passionate about and a demographic I'm I'm excited to serve. And then kind of having a, having a partner with uh, shared values and, and complementary skills. We have both have very high expectations of what it means to, you know, be comprehensive planners, provide great service, add value across the portfolio management process, all of those things you know, we kind of have those North stars and how we're thinking about building a business and with the focus being on service and making sure that fees are fair and really making it a great, unbelievable value for people in our sweet spot and doubling down on serving them well. So there was this alignment there, but also some, some differences in terms of personalities that, that kind of made it a a natural fit. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, how many 
different changes have happened and you know we're we're talking about our business and our industry but it certainly is applicable to every industry who could have imagined 5 years ago that uh, when i and you may have mentioned this uh, but to make it a little bit more clear for our listeners when we first started talking jared you were living in honduras correct yeah that's that's right and that's something i uh i glossed over so that was a Awesome experience. My wife and I were just kind of at interesting crossroads of both of our jobs. And uh, we had always loved the idea of potentially going down to Honduras. That's that's a big part of our relationship story as well. That's where, you know, Sparks kind of flew for the first time. So we had always kind of daydreamed in the back of our mind doing that. And we got kind of got to a point in our spot uh, in our lives where it's like, hey, we don't have a ton going on. If, if, if we have this itch, now is the time to scratch it. So uh, so we moved down to Honduras and my wife was a teacher at an inner city school in St. Louis. So we had three months of runway and I thought, hey, maybe I could provide outsourced planning services and kind of see where that goes. And so it was definitely an adventure and we were there for eight months and, and COVID brought us back. But yeah, Justin, that's exactly right. We were living living in Honduras uh, in a small little town of Trujillo, which is off the northern coast right by the beach. Yeah, that really is incredible. Uh, some of the biggest changes that just really stick out in our industry, but in every industry, is the ability to just ask the question, what is the optimal hire for the role that, that, that we're looking for? Uh, in the past, and, and I mean when I started Brownlee Wealth Management, I thought that the filter I had to look through was they've got to be in Houston. Um, and so my, the talent pool is restricted to Houston. Uh, but looking for a COO and, and someone who could run the business, uh, you were in a position where you had uh, a pivotal role uh, with 10 different RAAs, 10 different investment firms. Um, so that type of experience is, is very unique, especially uh, because our industry, you know, if we just go back five, 10 years, was almost entirely sales driven. And so it really is amazing that uh, location has been has been replaced by expertise, which I think everyone wins in that in that equation. Yeah. And it's interesting you because like a lot of people, when they look for someone, they look for someone with industry experience. But the problem is like historically what that has meant is somebody like in a sales centric role who does really one part of the business right? They just do the sales or the implementation or the client meetings. And then all the operational, all the compliance, all the portfolio management, all of the technology, right? Like they just get to defer to the home office and have them figure it out. So like, but, but with a smaller boutique firm, you have more control over that, but you have more of a responsibility to kind of pick that. So it's interesting because you and I've had conversations where, you know, hiring somebody with industry experience doesn't really help sometimes if they've worked, if their experience is with a big firm doing one piece of the business, because, you know, our firm's so small and everybody has their hands in everything. So it's interesting, you know, how, how that came to be. Absolutely. And, uh, as we, as we get toward the end, I'd love to ask a, a couple more personal questions. When you think about where you want to be as a family, 10, 20 years from now, what does that look like? Uh, to answer this for myself, it's kind of connected to my family. I think of like having margin, right? Successful for me looks like having margin to to give mental energy to causes I'm passionate about, to give time to my kids, to give resources to under-resourced people. I think of just having margin to do that, right? So that's one of the things I get really excited about and, uh, you know, kind of pass, carrying on with my family, the family I grew up and started is just continuing to be experiential and just really open-handed with with the things we've been given and the things we have to, 
to just kind of love on people uh, and, and make the world a better place than we left it. So I love kind of creating experiences and a, a family culture to do that. And, and also just to kind of take care, like to take care of yourself, right? Also not just give, but to, to receive. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that and like self-care. And I think a lot of people, you know, just push, push each other, push themselves so hard uh, to the point where they're just exhausted and there's no life to be had and they're just kind of at their wits end. And, and that's not something I want for our family. I want us to be a family that, that that's really good at being outward and engaging, but but also that we're really full and we're, and we're filled up and we're, and we're taking care of ourselves and loving on one another. Uh, so yeah, th- those are kind of some of the things that that I want to to be true of us. But I really love going back to that word of of margin. And you only have margin if your cup is full, right? Uh, and 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 you're taking care of yourself and 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 loving and loving well. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, we've never talked about that idea, and I wasn't planning on this, but that is an incredible metric of uh, financial and life success. Uh, so financial success is it you know, having $5 million or $35 million. Well, maybe it's neither. Maybe it, maybe it's having margin. Um, I love that. Love that thought. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's right. Wealth is wealth is kind of that idea, but a lot of the problem with wealth is we think of it in the dimension of having more, but there's also another component of, of needing less. And that doesn't mean you should kind of like inflict this, you know, have suboptimal living conditions. It's just, you know, what, what, what do you need and what do you have? And, you know, if, if you work on having more and needing less, there's really two ways you're kind of pulling on that to, to create margin. But yeah, it's just such a, such a good idea. Um, and something I've, I've really been chewing on and trying to, trying to build towards, uh, as I think about the future. Absolutely. I love that. Let's see. Last question. What is one idea quote principle, uh, that's speaking to you right now and, uh, how do you want it to impact your life? I think for me, the the idea that's really kind of become front and center for me is is commitment. And what I mean by that is like I'm uh, I'm approaching thirty, right? So I'm in my late twenties. So I've a lot of a lot of this season, you know, the prior years uh, has been exploration, right? Different careers, different firms. Uh, my wife's just recently is finishing up grad school. We've lived in. Honduras, St. Louis, Memphis, Fayetteville, Bentonville since we've been married. So there's been a lot of kind of exploration and just learning and going on a journey. And so, yeah, so we've just kind of been doing a little bit of everything, which has been good. But I think this next season is, we, we've been saying yes to a lot of different things, but I think this season is is more marked by us learning to say no. Now that we have clarity of, okay, what do we want as a family? Who do we want to spend more time with? What's a, what are we building towards? What's what gets us closer to that goal? What doesn't get us closer to that goal? Kind of finding out, okay, what are what are our big rocks? And then just being ruthless and saying yes to those and then being okay with just kind of releasing releasing everything else. So I feel like just based on kind of the where we're at, it's is is things get into focus for us. I would say just really doubling down on those and 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 just kind of continuing to clarify and sharpen what those are and committing to those things and then being okay with just saying no to everything else. That isn't that right. Cause you just, you can't be all things to all people. And I think, you know, a lot of people, it's good advice early in your career to say yes a lot, right. Just to learn and to figure it out. Cause you're just kind of, you know, you're bumping through things, kind of getting, getting clear of what you want out of life and what you want your professional life to look like. But as, as we kind of begin to round this corner here, I think commitment, uh, is really something that, that Aaron and I want to focus on and that, you know, we're going to kind of, it's going to be a big rock for us going forward. And I think, what does that look like, right? I think 
kind of margin, right? Getting getting back to this idea, the only way that you can have margin is by really taking inventory, right? If you if you're trying to be all things to all people and just do a little bit of everything, you won't do anything well. Your cut, you know, your cup will be empty because it's because you're spread too thin and you know you you don't really have clarity as to what it is you're working towards. So I think it's kind of reverse engineering. Okay, margin's the thing I want. Okay, really distilling down, okay, what are our family values? How do I get there? And how do I how do I commit to those things and release everything that isn't that is is, you know, that's that's the roadmap, I think. That's incredible. I love that answer. And yeah, interesting even as a firm how much that's happened with us over the past uh, several months and years. Uh, I think we've gotten even more focused, even more committed on a very narrow uh, group of people in uh, in the hopes of being the absolute best firm in the world for them. Really hard to be the best firm in the world for a billion people, uh, but you can take a very specific group, a very specific niche, get very, get committed, and be the best in the world for them. That's right, and you know you're not saying like I hate the framing of like. Hey, just say no to everything. No, 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 no. You're you're really just saying yes to a bigger thing, and and yes to something that you're really excited about. Have a lot of inertia and energy towards. So, you know, we can't be all things to all people, right? If a someone who has is a franchisee and they come to us and they have a bunch of franchises, we'll probably refer that business out. I, I think we could add value, but the question is, you know, are we in our sweet spot doing our best work for a client that? you know, we really know how to serve best. Right. And so I, I think you're exactly right. So I think it's funny that there's the parallels that those things are kind of happen personally and with us as the business, as we, you know, get our wings beneath us and get clarity and, and even more laser focus as to what the, what the coming years look like. It's exciting. Absolutely. One final bonus question. Uh, we'll leave LA out of this Memphis, um, Texas, who has the better barbecue? Oh man, I'm biased. I don't think, and I'm surprised you didn't even put KC in there because I got I got a lot of respect for well, KC. Well, I, I I picked yours since obviously you're an equity owner in a business headquartered in Texas and you've lived in Memphis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I would say Memphis because I I know it better. Here's the thing: I like I like dry rub and I like pork and I like ribs and like. Memphis does those things pretty well. Um, and like dry rub, there's, you know, just like the way they prep the meat is just so thoughtful. And like you can you can have a little barbecue sauce on it, but it doesn't need to hide behind the barbecue sauce. And there's just so many, there's also a sentiment piece too of like so many dives where it's just like, you're not going for the aesthetic or like the critical acclaim, but man, you're in a not so great part of town, but it's just kind of a hole in the wall joint. that's just so much soul and grit, just like the city of Memphis. So um, there's no way to take that bias out of it. But I, but I love me some Memphis barbecue, but, but I will say Texas has some great barbecue and I'm, I'm hoping that every time I'm in town, you're committed to proving me wrong. Cause you know, I've enjoyed the places we've had. They've been, they've been lights out and uh, Texas definitely does brisket better and brisket's probably my favorite meat, but uh Memphis has the edge. I gotta 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 rep the nine oh one for sure. And uh, I think most of us, most of our listeners know this. Uh, Jared, you're located um, in Northwest Arkansas, so Fayetteville, Bentonville, the uh, number one barbecue place in Northwest Arkansas is essentially a Central Texas uh, barbecue place. Rights Barbecue. If you're ever in Fayetteville or Bentonville, uh, definitely worth checking out. Give it a shake. Well, thank you, thank you for interviewing me, Justin. I I appreciate getting to be 
in the in the passenger seat this time. Absolutely. Until next time, we will see you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.